So I saw um, that I wrote that I was going to talk about sitting, sitting with burning difference. And I thought that was inspired when I wrote it. And I, I was thinking about that this morning. And you know, I thought, really sitting with burning difference is sitting with the burning difference that is already you. And that's how we learn to do it. But it's more difficult in, uh, in a society of a lot of competing and often violent views. So I'm going to talk a little bit about um, kind of formal Buddhist thought and, um, and then open that up. So, because I think actually it's really helpful. Uh, there's a clarity in uh, the way Buddhism understands the mind that I feel like is, is important in understanding what's going on now or how to respond to what's going on now. So um, there is this uh, Buddhism basically, in early Buddhism, and it carries forward, teaches us that there are two ways of in engaging or interrupting the process of confusion or the karmic mind or the habits that we're used to believing. One is um, at our views, the way we view the world. Okay, and some of these views are quite deep. So early Buddhism focuses on um, the way the aspects of mind grasp themselves what's often called the self-clinging aggregates. You know, and so we look at these aspects of mind, and we look at the way the mind just wants to grab onto itself and make whatever it, it has been believing, or whatever it currently believes, or whatever it's doing, the truth about who I am and about the world. Later uh, schools of Buddhism focused on paying close attention to that if we look really closely, we cannot find any solidity there, what's often called emptiness of own being, or there is no there, there in the things. Everything is deeply dependently co-arisen. <coughs> and so, by seeing that, um, the mind stops grasping itself, if we see that with the whole of the body. And yet another school of Buddhism focuses on, even before that, the mind has a deep inclination or an immediate response to the world of making a self over here and another over there. And so before I even grasp anything else, I'm grasping this division. Okay. Zen picks all of these up. But it is... Um, it is important, I think, to know that this seeing of dependent co-arising, the seeing of the interdependence of all things, this is not something that is happening outside in the world. Like, I'm here, and everything over there is dependently co-arising. And it's not even thorough enough to say, everything over there is dependently co-arising, and I'm dependently co-arising. But to go one step further and say, everything 
that is arising is arising dependent on the way that I am framing it. I have a set of views about the world that I've been conditioned to believe in everything that even, even the way I see it interconnected is connected to the way I'm framing it, to my views. And, um, and so we have very root ideas about the world. Some of them are um, personal to us, we might say psychological. Some of them are social. Some of them are even deeper than our immediate society, They're the way we frame time, the way we frame what it is to be a being, like a separate permanent one. And we, the deeper these views get, the more subtle they get, the harder it is to see the grasping, and usually the stronger the grasping is, because we're building everything on top of those deeper views. They're the foundational views, and then they're the ones above that, and the ones above that, and then finally we get to our behavior, which we can kind, kind of maybe see. But do we see our behavior as something that, you know, um, when the Buddha talks about behavior being wholesome or unwholesome, so in the realm of karma, in the realm of the world that we can see that we are actually, there are some behaviors that generate harm, and there are some behaviors that generate harmony. And now we're looking at that level. Now, one of the, one of the very root um, difficulties we have when we don't uh, see this dependent co-arising as the way, we don't understand dependent co-arising with our bodies as the way things are arising. And all that basically means is there is nothing the wor in the world, there's nothing in reality that isn't arising causally conditioned by something else. And ultimately by everything else. Although certainly that which is closer is a greater cause than that which is farther away. But by everything else, if we don't see this, then what the mind wants to do, what the separate self wants to do, is root itself in something definite. And that creates a whole habit of the mind around transcendent truths. What I believe is the truth. And um, that truth isn't within the context, it's not within the conditions of everything else we don't believe. We believe that truth is somewhere else. It's the one that's for sure. Of course, there's a problem with this, because if all the minds believe that, then we have chaos. And so we look at a society where all the minds, many of the minds, are believing they have the truth. And it doesn't really matter how accurate your truth is, or how accurate my truth is, if we believe it's ultimate. The risk of the damage is still there. Because we will grind that truth into the world with everything we have, if we grasp it. And we will hate people who don't agree with us. Because the people who don't agree with us are not only shattering our sense of truth, they're shattering our sense of stability, 
our sense of self, our sense of everything knowable in the world. So what do we do? What is the behavior of a mind that doesn't ground itself in some sort of definite ultimate truth? And this is where I think the Buddha did something fairly revolutionary. Because for, for him, this, wor- this notion of karma was rooted in intentionality. So if I cause harm to another person, it has to do with my, the intention I have behind it. Now, I may be conscious of that intention or not conscious of that intention. That's a different question. But if there's a behavior that causes harm, there are a few things that are going on. One is either I'm not conscious of my intention to cause harm, or I'm really ignorant about the context. I'm really ignorant about the way I'm acting in a particular context. He calls this upaya, or skillful means. I don't know. I'm bringing something that worked here, and I'm forcing it over here. And it doesn't work, and so I cause harm. Either way, whether I'm bringing my self-grasping intention as a separate self that's absolutely true into the world, or I'm taking something into a context that is, it's not appropriate for, I'm not experiencing myself as an interdependent being at that point. I'm not experiencing myself as someone who's contextualized. I'm not seeing myself as someone who's dynamic and impermanent and changing, and I'm not allowing myself to be that. And so, I'm ripping the world at that moment. I'm ripping reality at that moment. So what do we do? So the mind isn't a truth maker. It's not a truth seeker in the old way of understanding truth. It's not a finding something definite. It's a moral mind. It's a moral mind that is um, always paying attention to context. Always paying attention to what is cultivating harmony and what is causing harm in every situation. Now that is not to be confused, I believe, my interpretation is that is not to be confused with um, a kind of surface peace where everybody just smiles and is nice to each other. Because boiling under that surface peace are going to be the causes and conditions of an explosion. And so we're not being mindful enough if we think that harmony is just nice-nice. And the Buddha didn't ask us to do that. The Buddha asked us to pay attention to the causes and conditions of our behavior, the causes and conditions of harm. And one of those causes and conditions is a fake niceness. Or an ignoring of violence, or an ignoring of historic violence, or an ignoring of any number of things. So this gets to be tricky business, because... How do we come in contact with 
views in our society that are clearly meant to harm. Some are not clearly meant to harm. They're just opinions we don't agree with. We need to clarify that. There are some opinions we just don't agree with, but the people who are, believe them actually have a moral position that they believe is rooted in kindness. So we have to get clear on that first. Um, but some are not, some are most certainly rooted in harm, rooted in a desire to harm. Even if they don't think they are. <laughs> you know, sometimes there's a desire to harm that is um, grounded in a belief system that in and of itself is violent, and so it seems logical within that system. It doesn't seem harmful in that system, but the system itself is harmful. Right? So, so this is a, this distinction that happened in later Mahayana Buddhism, which was the difference between a word that was called jnaya and a word that was called klesha. And the distinction between the two is one was a kind of emotional confusion that happens with our own personal, psychological, so on. And the other one was this more cognitive, intellectual view. And so what we're looking at in our current society at this current moment, I believe, is that these underpinning frameworks, views, and assumptions are being challenged. It's not just that it's not just that we're, um, that people are upset with each other or that there's, you know, there's, there are foundational views, foundational systems of belief upon which a whole set of activities seem appropriate. But once the foundation is challenged, then all of those behaviors stop seeming so appropriate. And they, don't, they haven't seemed appropriate to everyone, <laughs> but they've seemed quite appropriate to the people who are benefiting from those views. And if we look at our own practice, right, this is not easy. It's one thing to look at, I mean, our behavior is hard enough to look at the way, oh, I harm someone, I'm going to stop doing that, or I'm going to stop that habit because I see that harms me and so on. But when we start getting down to the fundamental things that confuse us, like I'm a separate self and you're somebody else, that is very tough territory. It's quite destabilizing. We don't know what to do with that. We're lost for a little while until we're okay with being lost, until we're okay with being ungrounded, until we come to realize that there is a ground in groundlessness that actually the deepest ground seeks no ground. And so, when a society is starting to throw into question, which it does every once in a while, thank goodness, throw into question its assumptions, then all hell breaks loose. We don't know what to do. We don't know what's next. We don't know what's going to replace it. We don't necessarily want what's happened to continue, but what's the next thing? And there are a lot of ideas. 
And there are a lot of people who are grasping onto the old ways of doing it because it's all that's known. And it's not, I believe, it's not only because people want to dominate or want power, but it's, it's terrifying to imagine a world where that's not the position you're in. If that's the position you've always been in, then the only thing that makes sense to you is that it's going to be flipped. <laughs> that's the only other reality. And this is the, this is the fear, I think, of, of many people right now, is in a history of violence, in a history, and not all of our history is violence, but that's what's being challenged right now, our histories of violence. Then oftentimes, if it's, it's, if it's set up in a binary of one over the other, then the only thing that people can imagine, because they've never had an experience of anything else, is that that's going to flip. Unless they've had an experience of something else, which is many together. Which I would hope would be Sangha. But um, all of that goes right back to the belief in self and other. If I am spending all my effort trying to secure my view of who I am, you people are in the way. You know, you're just in the way of that. You're constantly compromising it. You're telling me things I don't want to believe about myself. I don't want to look at those things. I don't want that mirrored. I want the nice little crisp view of who I am. But the thing is, is it doesn't even work. Without you, it doesn't even work, right? Spend time alone on a zazen cushion and suddenly, uh, there's all this burning difference in us. You know, and it's one, I love, I love the burning um, metaphor in Buddhism because, you know, it goes all the way back to the Buddhist fire sermon. And he talks about the mind burning with dukkha. And not pain. Pain is one thing. But dukkha is another. Dukkha is a separate self. If, if we were going to give it, we often say suffering. I think that's not quite there. Um, it's a kind of shorthand, but it's, it's a particular kind of suffering, which is a separate self wants to be constantly satisfied in the way that it wants to be satisfied. It wants the world to satisfy it in the way that it wants to be satisfied. That is never going to happen. Our views of ourselves are... Um, never going to hold, they're never going to hold. And so when we assert them into the world, even if our reason for asserting them into the world is to create harmony, if we assert them as transcendent truths, they will create wreckage along the way. because they are not including. And, and, you know, there's always this back and forth, back and forth between the two sides, but um, this doesn't mean everybody's view should be given the same power. 
views that intentionally cause harm, I personally believe should be radically disempowered in society. As quickly as possible. But um, that being the case, we can't be confused and do the same thing. So to not do that means that we have to sit with, um, with that burning feeling when someone is saying something that we feel is deeply morally wrong. And to feel that... Um, burn completely without acting from that. Without acting from that, um, that burning, to not shun it, to not send the burning away, to not deny it, to not pretend we like everything or everybody. But, um, but that we don't reduce well, a few things. One is that we don't come from a place of separation, so we have to be with that burning until it, even if it doesn't cool completely, at least we know it's not the sanest response to come from that place. That we have to include other things. One other thing we have to include is to not reduce that person to a separate self who is the fault of their own existence. That they're not the cause of who they are. That they are fully, deeply interconnected, conditioned beings that have come about in the world and are not, and really are not, separate from the things that conditioned us. And, it, and, and maybe even some of the things that conditioned them conditioned us too. And if we make them completely other we will have a very difficult time seeing those aspects in ourself, in our own bodies and minds. We'll have difficulty seeing our own hatred. We'll have difficulty seeing our own bias and prejudice because we're making hatred and bias and prejudice over there. And we're good. Being with that burning, this isn't what I was going to say, but this is what's coming. Um, being with that burning, as we know in this practice, is um, the burning of our own rage, the burning of our own fear, the burning of our own outrage. The mind becoming increasingly stable with that is the increase in our capacity for compassion. Now this word compassion, I'll keep saying this because I think it's very important. It comes from, it's translation of the word karuna, and that first root in karuna is the same as karma. It's the root is K-R in Pali. And it has an aspect to it that means to act. So it's not just that we're being with the burning of ourselves and other people. It's that we're being with the burning so thoroughly that we want it to end. That there is an arising in us for it to end. 
So it's not a disinterest. It's not a disinterest in the sense of, um, okay, yeah, there's pain and that's the way things are. But the mind is um, still so that the heart can be free to act. Because until the mind is still, until the mind is not grasping, the heart is being cordoned off by the biases of the mind. And it just is not free to do its job. And so when we can't love a person and we can't find our way to them as a conditioned being, that's a question for us as bodhisattvas. What's happening? And it's not to deny, you know, real life fear and real life harm. A lot of times this teaching gets turned into, or the fear that comes up in people around this kind of teaching is, does that mean I need to accept everything equally? Certainly not. In fact, quite the opposite. The very first questions we should have are moral ones. Those should be our first questions. Not some sort of equalized, um, everybody's telling an equal truth. That has no mean, that doesn't mean anything. Everybody's telling an equal truth. What are the effects of the believing in that truth? That's the question for me. What are the effects of my investment in a particular way of seeing? What are the effects of my not looking at an aspect of our lives? together. What are the effects of that? So, um, Ian, when am I supposed to stop? Okay, good. So then I'll just finish with something. You've heard me talk about this koan before. I'll probably keep talking about it because I just love it. Um, There's a poem in case 89 of the Book of Serenity, which is the um, the collection of stories for our school, our tradition, the Soto Zen tradition. And the last two lines of the poem are going along with the old dead tree with the same emaciated cold about to follow the spring wind into the scars of the burning. I just, personally, I have never found a more um, powerful expression in the Bodhisattva vow than those two lines. The old dead tree is often, is, is a way of talking about a few things. One is our practice just becoming habit. We're just sitting and doing our practice, and it's kind of divorced from life. It's practice for our own awakening and for our own liberation and our own freedom, and so it dies. 
it becomes cold, it becomes thin. And in realizing that, the monk who's writing the poem says, about to follow the spring wind. Now the spring wind is um, you know, a way of talking about suchness or, or the um, realizing life as itself and life being life dynamically arising as me instead of thinking of me as some separate being from life. But, um, well, so this is liberation, this is awakening. But he doesn't hang out with the spring wind because hanging out with the spring wind takes you back to the old dead tree. So about to follow the spring wind into the scars of the burning, into the history of the karma of our world. We don't go into the history of the karma in our world. We don't address the karma of our world from the old dead tree from a kind of removed, indifferent um, practice obsessed with not feeling. But we can't address the karma of our world from the burning either, or we will be reactive, we will become confused, we will take up the tools of the violence as the means to undo it. You know, for a very long time, I did not trust at all the gentleness of the body. I just, it was trained out of me as a young boy, and it took me a very long time to actually believe that it was reliable or that it was somehow the possibility of the experience of life. That gentleness and that connection and that deeper quiet. But this is the aspect of the spring wind. So when the spring wind is realized, we don't stay with it, the Bodhisattva follows it into the scars of the burning as the spring wind. Not as the burning, not as the dead separate practice, but as the spring wind. And so when that's not the case, we sit and we look and see what's going on. And it's not just a matter of looking. Discernment's important. We have to discern our karma. We have to discern our conditions. But we also sit still because there's something deeper going on, which is we're learning to trust the body. We're learning to trust life. We do it again and again and again because something is happening underneath it all that we don't even know is happening which is our body is becoming a body. Our body is becoming a life. It already is, but we are fighting with it. So we have to give up the fight. And giving up the fight takes a lot of stillness. 
until we become that stillness. I'll stop there. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.